Father in heaven, well, we know about your word. Your word tells us it's living and active. And whether it's spoken in person or spoken over the airwaves or through the internet, it does exactly what you want it to. And so we pray that you would cause your word to penetrate our hearts. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Give us attitudes and minds that look past the man who declares them and longs to hear from you. And so, Lord, help me, even as the preacher of this truth, to get out of the way. Cause your spirit to do the work, the real work. And Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And I ask in his name, amen. The, uh, the online bulletin had a, a misprint because I provided Terry the wrong scripture reference. I neglected to put the one. So it's Matthew chapter 16, not chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I invite you to join me uh, in your own Bibles as you follow along. Matthew chapter 16, 1, 6, verses 13 through 20. I haven't said this in a while, but in the church Bible, it's 822. Not that any of you care at home, but there are a few here who might be using those, so 8.22. All right, let's, uh, let's give attention to this part of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the Word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Uh, you know, when uh, construction first began on this, this facility, I remember that great anticipation that we had, but it seemed like it took so long. Uh, you know, the, the equipment came in, they leveled the ground, they compacted it with that heavy equipment and waited. Then they poured some foundations with steel in those foundations, and then they waited. And then they came in and they, they put in a concrete pad and they waited. Then finally, that steel superstructure was erected and we have the beginnings at that time of what we're standing in this morning. Well, why all that time? Well, of course, the, the reason is if you want the structure to stand and resist the wind and the, the rain, you have to have 
a solid foundation. You have to make sure that that foundation is secure. You know, if, if, if nothing else, this, this pandemic, this COVID-19, this virus, this microbe, it has forced churches everywhere to consider what is essential, what is foundational to the local church. There are so many things that we have done that we have just simply taken for granted are essential for the church that have been stripped away from us. Now, over the years, and I've read extensively on this topic, people have written about uh, what makes for a solid church, books and articles and blog posts. Church, there are even church consultants to tell you what makes for a, a solid church, a, a good, strong church. These, these so-called experts have shared their practical wisdom. And, and like I said, over the years, I've read a lot of this stuff. But of course, during this time, as many things that we thought were important have been taken away from us, and I would say temporarily, and that's certainly our hope, it has caused me to ask the question, what, what is essential? And that's what led me to this passage of Scripture this morning. What does the church need? What is, the, what is essential for the church to stand, to prevail against any and all opposition? Now, as I said, you know, some, some churches in the past have turned to, to marketing experts. They've, they've listened to them. They, they say what you need is a good, strong uh, branding program, or you need an effective communication strategy, or you need programs that meet the felt needs of your congregation. What is essential? What is that foundational rock upon which the church will stand? What is that thing that will make the church impervious to opposition, whether that's external or even internal? And so here's where I'm going this morning as we take some time and unpack this passage of Scripture. I want us to see from this text of Scripture that there is one essential truth, that there is one source of power, and the church has one simple mandate, one truth, one power, one mandate. So let's look at this text together. Verses 13 through 16 highlight the one truth. Now, I think that we, we all understand that, that people will form their opinion about others in a way that's not always based on truth. And this is particularly true of those who are in the public realm. People are typically who are in the public realm, and I'm thinking politicians, they're open to mischaracterization. And maybe that person has done something to offend or disappoint, or perhaps they were simply on the other side of a, of a debate and they found themselves in the crosshairs because there wasn't agreement. And so I think we almost take it for granted, in fact, that, that, um, that people who hold an opposing view will be treated in a way that, that pretty much demonizes everything that they do. You can see this in the, in the political speak these days. I've seen this tendency in myself. I, Kathy and I watched a documentary the other day, but I won't mention who the political figure is, but it was very interesting, and, and we both commented to each other after. It's like, wow, we, we had an opinion that was not so fair. Of course, the documentary was written to be very positive, but all the same, my thinking, and again, this is not a person I know or who knows me, they don't even care about me, 
and it doesn't matter. But, but I saw it in myself, that, that tendency to mischaracterize. This can even happen in a positive sense. People see somebody that they absolutely love, and, and it particularly happens with presidents. They get almost a messianic uh, view around them. They can do no wrong. But still, still, it's not based on truth. But Jesus questioned to his disciples. Now, Jesus by then was a, a, a well-known figure. His, his miracles had highlighted the very fact that he had a unique kind of power and people flocked to him because people were getting healed from their sicknesses and diseases and, and demons were being cast out. It was a remarkable thing. And many people were flocking to Jesus, so he was well known. So Jesus asks his disciples a very, very pointed question. Who do people say, not you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It touched on that very reality. There's a perception about Jesus out there. What is it? People had formed opinions about Jesus. His signs, of course, were amazing. His teaching was wise. His compassion for the sick was unparalleled. He attracted so much attention. Now, the disciples were already quite aware that the religious leaders did not have much use for Jesus. They thought he was a fraud. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker for picking grain, for healing on the Sabbath. They also knew, the disciples also knew that Jesus' close uh, blood family, his immediate relatives, had suspicions about him. They thought maybe he was out of his mind. But Jesus wasn't asking what, about them. He wanted to know what the crowds, those who were following him, those who were standing close, those who were hoping for some healing or some intervention, what did they say about Jesus? And so they report, well, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, others just one of the prophets. And it's interesting, all of these were answers that, that included a measure of faith. It's assumed a belief, at least in the, the scriptures, the Old Testament as we would call it, but they're scriptures. The expectation that at least the forerunner to the Messiah would be a Jeremiah figure, somebody coming in the spirit of Jeremiah or somebody coming in the spirit of, of Isaiah. Well, John the Baptist, that was a little bit different one because he was regarded as a present-day prophet and, and Herod had had him beheaded. John had spoken out against Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife, an immoral marriage. It ended up getting him beheaded. So, because people revered John the Baptist, they thought, well, maybe he's come back. But understand, see, these are religious answers. They're leaning towards positive things. They were not the truth. They were inadequate, those answers. And the only answer that would suffice for Jesus was the truth. Verse 15, he said to them, all the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter's answer, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter lands on that one essential truth. You are the Christ. What, is, what does that mean? We take this for granted. But that New Testament uh, word the, in the Greek, Christos, it sounds very much like Christ. That's the title given to the long-promised one in the Scripture. So all of the Scriptures, all of the prophets pointed toward this, this Messiah figure. The Hebrew is Messiah. 
meaning simply anointed one, the one that God had promised to take the eternal throne of David. And Jews were, were hopeful for the Messiah. It wasn't anything unusual about the expectation of Messiah, but what was unique was that Peter said, you are that one. Now, of course, Jews were looking for the Messiah, but Peter took it further. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God, but he takes it further. The son of the living God. See, what Peter did was he pointed to a special relationship that Jesus had with God the Father as the divine Son of God. What Peter seemed to understand there, or at least testify to, even if he didn't fully grasp it, it's what, how John introduced Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, if someone mischaracter mischaracterizes you or, or, or me, what consequence is there? Probably very little. Their delusion about us or you may reveal nothing more than emotional or relational immaturity or just simply distance or lack of interest. But get Jesus wrong. Get Jesus wrong, his identity, and your very soul hangs in the balance. So let me ask you, what do you say about Jesus? See, it's not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is unique, though he is. It's not enough to acknowledge that he is popular. He was. It's not enough to acknowledge that he is even religiously significant. That is not enough. You must acknowledge that he is in the flesh, the human Messiah promised by the scriptures. You must acknowledge that he is indeed the son of the living God, the eternal, pre-existent, divine son of God who was with God in the beginning and who is God, through whom all creation came into existence as the very word of God. You must acknowledge that. You leave out those pieces and there are, there are still more things that must be acknowledged as well. But if you leave out those pieces, you miss out on who the Messiah is. You must acknowledge that he lived in perfect, sinless, perfect, repeating myself, in sinless perfection. You must acknowledge that he died and that indeed he walked out of that tomb on the third day. And you must understand the reason that he did it was to save us from the penalty that was due us for our own sins. To acknowledge Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is to acknowledge everything he said about himself, everything that he did in truth, and the reason why he did it. So let me ask you again, who do you say that Jesus is? Your very soul hangs in the balance. This one essential foundational truth and we know this. There are a lot of popular notions about Jesus today. And so where you are, 
Maybe you're not normally part of our church family and you've just tuned in today. You found us on the internet. Maybe you, along with the rest of the world, might say, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus. He was a wise teacher. He was a a miracle worker, to be sure. Or maybe you think of him as a revolutionary. You know, he challenged the status quo. He resisted the, the entrenched leaders Or maybe you see him as a a social justice warrior. He looked out for the outcasts, the marginalized. Or maybe you see him as a, a tragic hero met with a tragic end as some sort of accident of history. Oh, people didn't understand him and they killed him. Sad. Without acknowledging that he went to the tomb and rose on the third day. That's not enough. That's not enough. You need to take to heart what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians. I will quote you Colossians 1.15 about Jesus. The one about whom Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Apostle Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent Son, the one before we must all bow. I was reminded, uh, thinking about this, of a song by Larry Norman. Some of you are too young to remember who that is. He was a trailblazer in communicating a Christian message through the genre of rock music. It was rather scandalous at the time, but I love the words of this song. This is the outlaw. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land. And this song, I think, captures the sentiment of a lot of people. Some say that he was an outlaw, he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled fishermen, ruffians, I should say, and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done, but they said he must be, must be something bad that kept him on the run. Some say he was a poet, that he'd stand upon the hill that his voice could calm an angry crowd and make the waves stand still, that he spoke in many parables that few could understand. But the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water. He could make a blind man see that he conjured up, conjured wine at weddings and in tricks with fish and bread, that he talked about being born again and raised people from the dead. Some say a politician who spoke of being free, he was followed by the masses on the shores of Galilee. He spoke out against corruption and he bowed to no decree and they feared his strength and power so they nailed him to a tree. And he gets to the climax of the song. Some say he was the son of God a man above all men, that he came to be a servant to set us free from sin. And he finishes this way. And that's who I believe he is because that's what I believe. And I think we should all get ready because it's time for us to leave. Well, the song kind of falls apart a little bit poetically at the end, but... And, and maybe he understates it. That's who, he, that's who I believe he is because that's what I believe. In fact, that's who we believe Jesus is because that's who he said he was. That's who Jesus is because that's who the scriptures attest to him as. 
He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's one essential truth that you must deal with today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Everything hangs on what you believe. Paul says this in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, friend, believe today. One essential truth. Secondly, it'll point you to the fact that there is one power. One power. Uh, I saw this heading just this morning, in fact. Um, Warren Buffett said it. American magic will triumph over coronavirus. Now, Buffett has uh, made billions betting on American ingenuity, American exceptionalism, you might call it, American skills and the, the pooling of resources. He's made a billions of dollars doing that. But what is American ingenuity? What, what is this thing? What is what he calls American magic? Because if you really think about it, as wonderful as this country is, and I, and I love it, love living here, affords us great freedoms. We, this nation, we, we don't actually create anything. We discover, we manipulate, we combine, we use stuff that God made. And we put it together with skills that God has given. None of that originated with us. The, the Apostle Paul points this out. Now, he's talking about a stewardship of the gospel message, but I think it's applicable across the realm of creation where we people are involved. The Apostle Paul asks rhetorically, what do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything did you invent out of nothing, anything at all? No. Paul's talking about the gospel. But what do we have that we didn't receive? If you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not? American magic, perhaps? Well, I say this because we sometimes have the view that we actually do things, that our role is actually more significant than it is. And that certainly applies to the church. We fall into the danger of thinking that we as leaders, we as members of churches, somehow do something that's eternally significant. When Peter made the good confession, Jesus affirmed it. But I want you to look closely at Jesus' response. Who gets the credit? Verse 17, after G Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus response. And it's a joyful one. I love it. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there's a lot here. But let's begin with this fact. It is God, the Father, that revealed the truth about Jesus to Peter. It was God the Father that made that revelation. Peter didn't come to that on his own. And Jesus said that he would build the church. None of the credit, again, goes to Peter. 
for even understanding who Jesus is. And none of the credit goes to any of the followers of Jesus for the church that would result, that would come to result, uh, that would come into effect as a result of that confession. Jesus said, I will build my church. So let's unpack um, Jesus' response. First of all, he says, on this rock. And this is a little bit technical here, so just hang in with me for this teaching. What's the rock? A lot of people have asked that question when they come to this passage of Scripture. Jesus said, on this rock will build my church. What's the rock? What's Jesus referring to? He's referring to himself. Now, for us Protestants, that's really comfortable. He says, well, it's a kind of a way of looking at it. Here's Jesus, and there's Peter. And Jesus is looking at Peter and goes, blessed are you. The Father didn't, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but my Father. And I tell you, you're Peter. But here we go. On this rock, I will build my church. That's really awkward. Is he meaning Peter? You're Peter. I'm going to build my church on you. You're the guy. It's been challenging. It's been challenging. It's true here. God revealed the truth to Peter. And Jesus said he would build the church. That's true. Understand in this exchange where Jesus says to Peter, on this rock. You are Peter on this rock. There's a little word play going on. In the, in the Greek, the New Testament Greek, Peter is Petros. And then, so you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra. Same word. Very similar words. So we, we have to conclude that Jesus somehow, some way means Peter. So is Peter the rock? Yes, but not in the way that we might be tempted to think. And again, here's where the, and I say this as graciously as I can, Roman Catholics go off the rails in this, affording Peter some sort of, um, like the first pope, and then he just passed on that power. That Jesus meant that he had to have charge over all of the church, but that's going too far. What Jesus was referring to is the thing that Peter said. Yes, he said, Peter, you're a rock. You're rocky. And I'm going to build my church on something. And that something is what you said. And what Peter said is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the one truth that Peter declared. And the one reality here is that there is one power for accomplishing it. The power from God for convincing Peter and the power from Jesus for building on that very confession that Peter, out of no volition or, or even ability of his own, declared before Jesus. That rock, that foundation of the church is the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we go back here. We go back. Jesus told Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So again, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's important we get this. It's not Peter's cleverness. It's not his own wisdom. It's the Father. There was nothing in Peter, or in fact, there's nothing in you or me that would make it possible for us to understand the truth about Jesus. It has to be divinely apprehended. So if you're a believer in Jesus today, listen. It is not primarily because you studied. It wasn't your logic. It wasn't your theological acumen. It was not your reasoning ability. And ultimately, it wasn't even because of the person who told you about Jesus that they were particularly persuasive. 
If you're a believer in Jesus today, it's because God himself awakened you to that truth. It's the grace of God. Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not your works. No one can boast. It's new life that comes from the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Creation is what God does. And if you're in Christ today, it's because God made you a new creation. It's what John says in his introduction to his gospel about those who received Jesus, to all who, re- who did receive him, John 1.12, who believed in his name. He, that is God, gave the right to become children of God. And how did, they, how did that happen? They were born not of blood, not a human interaction thing, not just because you were born to your mother and father, no, nor of the will of flesh, just because you wanted it to happen, no, not of the will of man of any kind, but of God. You were born of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul, that's why I should say, the Apostle Paul says the message about Jesus in Romans 1.16, he says, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, it's God's power to save. And if it's God's power to save, and God's alone, then what Jesus builds is not something based on any human ingenuity. Jesus is only building the church on the foundation of what the Father has already accomplished in the lives of people. Because it is true, as the Apostle Paul says, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. So, coming back to the church, Jesus said he would build it. That's Jesus' job. Now, I want to talk for a moment about what the church is. Is. So when Jesus said he'd build this thing called the church, and maybe we take this for granted, but I just want to take you to just some foundational truths about what the church is. The word only shows up twice in, in Matthew's gospel. Here and uh, over the page in your Bible, 823, <laughs> um, used in chapter 18. We'll touch on that section later. But that word in the original, and uh, no, we don't quote the New Testament Greek often. I'm using a few today, but ecclesia. That's where we get our word ecclesiology, the study of the church. That word ecclesia, that word church that Jesus used with his disciples, that, that idea was not foreign to them. The word was in fact used in the Old Testament. Now in our Old Testament, it doesn't show up. But Jews in the first century were using an, their Bible the scriptures that they studied from and read from, the scriptures that the rabbis read in the, in the synagogue, was called the Septuagint. It was simply a Greek translation of the scriptures. That word, church, ecclesia, shows up to describe the gathering of the covenant community of God. So at Mount Horeb, they churched. When God gave the law, they churched. When they were summoned to appear, they churched. When the gathering of God's people came together, it was called the church. So Jesus takes that word and he brings it into the the community of his people and he says, 
This thing that I'm building, this church, is the collection of those people who confess that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in believing that truth, when they gather together, those who believe that, therein is the church. And that's what Jesus said he'd build. Further, he said that death, well, he said it this way, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, the, the abode of the dead. He's not talking about the lake of fire. He's just simply meaning death. The church, Jesus said he'd build. Death will not be able to stand against it because the church possesses this life-giving message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that those who believe it because the Father reveals it to them will be awakened from their deadness. And as long as the church proclaims that message, it is being built up. So, know this. Know this in your mind. The power for salvation is God's. And the power for building up the church, that's God's. God is the one behind the church. Both the individuals in it who believe and the very organization of those who say that they do believe. So if Jesus builds the church, its success isn't ultimately up to you or me. And as much as we might think that the things that we do are consequential, if it's not primarily about declaring who Jesus is, then it's irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. And if Jesus builds up the church, nothing, nothing can stand against her. Not a pandemic, not social distancing, not money, not a government, nothing. Praise God for that. God is the power. Lastly, we have one mandate, one mandate. Uh, I, I grew up in a, a rural, semi-rural property near the city but outside of it. And for us as a family to get anywhere, it always involved a car ride. Now, many of my friends from, from our church were at least seven miles away. So getting the a license to drive a car was a huge milestone for me. That freedom to travel, not being dependent on my parents, that was great. I loved it. Of course, that privilege came with rules and restrictions and curfews and all the like. But, but just imagine a scene, and I don't know that it ever happened this way, but it was a long time ago. But imagine I'm, I'm talking with my dad and telling him, hey, the church youth group's meeting tonight. And if his response was not to say anything, but to reach in his pocket and toss me the keys, what would he expect me to do? Now, did he mean for me to just go up and hang them on the key rack? Did he mean for me to give them to my mother? Did he mean for me just to hold on to them and keep them safe until he asked, them for, asked me for them again? No, it was implied. Giving me keys was giving me permission to take the car and go to youth group, to put them in the ignition and fire up that engine and drive down the street and go my merry way. Now, in the same way, when, when Peter made the confession, you are the Christ, 
Jesus threw him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he expected him and all the apostles, by extension, also the whole church, to use them. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what is this binding and loosing? Again, lots of discussion and ink spilled over what this could possibly mean. Well, binding, what is that? Of course, it includes the idea of tying up or fastening something, but the word also means to impel or to compel or to simply make declarations about what and what is not lawful. And to that binding and loosing, Jesus said, whatever you bind and loose, heaven agrees. Jesus saying, whatever you declare, we're with you. Now that seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Again, there's a lot of, been a, a lot of confusion about this passage and much charity to the Roman Catholics. They've, they've taken it to mean that their Pope can say things and have those things regarded as somehow equal with Scripture, but that's going way too far with these keys. The use of these keys of the kingdom is far narrower and it has everything to do with the context in which Jesus said it. Let me take you just for a moment to chapter 18. I referred to it earlier. Chapter 18, verse 15, it begins. Let me just summarize what's going on there. Jesus is... is is telling his disciples how to resolve conflict within the community of faith, within the family of God. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him. So the way it's supposed to happen is, and, it, and, and this should be true of us too, if your brother does something that offends you, you go to him directly. Don't talk to your neighbor. You don't tell to somebody else. You, you go to that person and you deal with that brother. Now, it's entirely possible, and Jesus points this out, that the brother doesn't listen to you. You say, hey, brother, you stole, I mean, something obvious, you stole my car. Well, that's a very obvious thing, and, and that needs to be dealt with. But if that's happened, the brothers should deal with it with each other. Now, if you go to your brother and say, you stole my car, you give the car back. Everything's forgiven, it goes no further. The point here that Jesus is making is if you don't get resolution, then you bring some witnesses. And if that doesn't get resolved, you tell it to the church. And if it doesn't work out on the church, and if that, that individual resists that correction, then Jesus says you're to treat him as a Gentile and tax collector. Effectively, treat him as an outsider. And what does he mean by that? Do you mean to shun him and never speak with him? No. You treat him as someone who's not of the faith. What he is saying here, in the similar language that's used as, as in in, ver- in chapter 16, he is saying, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whatever declaration you make, church, heaven agrees. And what's that declaration about? Well, in the context of Matthew chapter 18, it has everything to do with the individual says, I'm a believer in Jesus, but behavior says otherwise. And after being confronted, he's refusing to repent. So you're going to treat him as one who is not, in fact, a believer in Jesus. You're going to treat him as an outsider. So we come back to Matthew chapter 16. We see the result of that progression. Jesus says, use these keys effectively to do what? This is the church's mandate to say, here's the gospel of Jesus. Do you believe it? 
and then make an assessment as to whether they do or not. This is, this is a part and parcel of the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples, and by extension the church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So a disciple-making activity involves telling them about Jesus. Here is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. You trust in him, you get new life. And the promise of a body, a resurrected body like his, that's the good news. Believe that. And then he says, baptizing. In other words, mark them. To baptize them, you're going to have to make an assessment. Do they really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And if you believe they believe that, if the church has said, yes, absolutely, they believe that. They're willing to live by that. You baptize them. And then they're included in the church, the assembly of the people of God. See, a disciple is someone who simply confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And if that confession is true, then that disciple will observe, that disciple will obey Jesus' teaching. That disciple will want to obey Jesus' teaching. That disciple will love to hear from other believers how to follow Jesus' teaching. That disciple will want to hear again and again and again about Jesus who died and rose again for him or her. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's, that's our mandate. There are a lot of things that we think we should do but the sole mandate that we have about which Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, is simply to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to include people in the family of God, marking them by baptism to say there's a brother and sister in Christ, and then putting our shoulders together to, to spread that news far and wide that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't it clarifying Now, we do a lot of things as a church. But as we think about the things that we do, we should always think of that one solitary mandate. Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys for what purpose? For declaring and affirming the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I got thinking about what we do. Some of the things that we, we have done. Now, there are a lot of things that we do, and I, I trust, I trust that we, that we do them in service of the gospel. Um, but, you know, as a result of this pandemic, the governor has imposed on us some requirements. They've imposed upon us Communication, especially as it comes to next week when we're gathering, we are now responsible for letting you know how we're supposed to gather in this space. Now, as important as that is, that's secondary to the thing that we're supposed to do, which is declare that Jesus is the Christ. We do business meetings. Can we talk? We're family. Um, we have done some business meetings lately that we have admitted have not gone well. And uh, 
We've owned up to that too. Um, but, but as I got thinking about this, what's the purpose of the business meeting? Well, it has one single purpose because we have one mandate. Our, our purpose together is not to have business meetings. And budgets are important, and as important as it is to have a budget, our purpose isn't budgets. Everything that we do, and we've got to keep this in perspective, brothers and sisters, the most important thing we do is the gospel. That's the main thing. And anything at all that distracts from that, we've got to set it aside. We've got to put our focus on proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. And so as we move forward in all of our communication, church family, help us. Let's strive together. We're planning a budget. We're not going to do this right now, but come November, we'll be, we'll be looking at a new budget. And so be praying. As we plan the budget, do we have in view proclaiming Christ? When we decide to have another business meeting or communicate something, help us and pray that we have in view the gospel. If we're thinking about supporting a missionary, of course, well, we trust. Do we have in view proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a lot of important things that we do, but we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. I was reminded, I didn't put this in my notes, but, and I know I'm taking a long time here. The Apostle Paul reminds the church at Corinth, chapter 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Top priority. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. There it is, brothers and sisters. The one mandate, the first importance. And so when we gather together, whether that's virtually or physically, we have the joy of coming together. Let's remind ourselves what we're doing is all about that confession that Peter made and that we all have affirmed together as part of this church. The writer of Hebrews says this, because he wants us to hold on. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. It's the same thing Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what do we do with that? Well, verse 24, we need to reflect that confession, right? We need it, we need it to be evident in our lives. And so here's what we do. Let us consider Think about, give priority to how we stir up one another to love and good works. And how's that going to happen? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We want to stir each other up in this good confession that we hold to that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is one truth, and that is it. There is one power, and it is all of God and all of Jesus. And there's one mandate. Make it known and confirm it to each other. In the season of pandemic and distancing and where so much of what we have done has been stripped away, let's keep our focus on the one main thing, the very rock and foundation of the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace in our lives to, to awaken us to the truth that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And we have the joy of, of dwelling together in unity with others who, who share the same conviction. Thank you for gathering us into the church. And thank you for the mission that you've given to us of declaring Christ, making him known, and encouraging each other to walk in this truth. Strengthen us for that, Father. And as we anticipate a time, hopefully very soon, where we'll return to being able to gather together, Lord, help us to come out of this time with greater strength and greater focus and greater conviction of what we're about. Remind us, Jesus said, he would build the church. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you. And we pray that in all of these things, Christ would be glorified. Amen.